Hello and welcome to the Feeling Good Podcast. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and joining me here in the Murrieta Studios is Dr. David Burns. Hi, David. Hi, Fabrice. Dr. David Burns has been a pioneer in the development of cognitive therapy, and he is the creator of the new team therapy. He is the author of Feeling Good, which has sold over 5 million copies in the United States and has been translated into over 20 languages. He is an emeritus adjunct clinical professor of psychiatry at the Stanford University School of Medicine. Welcome to episode 113 of the Feeling Good podcast. Today we have another Ask David. We're getting more and more questions. We're going to have to have longer and longer Ask Davids uh, to field all those questions. But um, We appreciate your questions. We do appreciate the questions, and, uh, and uh, they also help us uh, come up with topics for new episodes. So oh, yeah. Please keep them coming. So we got here something from Stephen, who said, uh, Thank you, and Fabrice, and special guests for your wonderful podcast. I'm wondering what advice you have for people who are interested in going into therapy. And he means by that becoming a therapist, I think. Especially, specifically team therapy. Uh, I see the Feeling Good Institute has referrals to people with CIDES, PhDs, and LCSW degrees, among others. Um, obviously, there are many avenues into mental health. Any specific advice on entering the field of mental health for those with an interest in team? Okay, well, uh, I'll, I'll throw some ideas out there, and you may have some ideas to throw out there as well, Fabrice. Um, the... Let, let me just say that of the people who come for team therapy to my free weekly Stanford training group for community therapists, those who are PhDs in clinical psychology tend to learn the most quickly and have the best training, the best discipline training, and that would probably go for PsyD students as, as well. Yes, yeah, a similar kind of training. Yeah, but at the same time, uh, the... If you want to do therapy and become a team therapist, any 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 route that you have for getting licensed to do to do counseling will will, will be sufficient, because you can have fancy degrees and and not be very skillful as a therapist, and and you can have a, the most humble degree and be tr- tremendously skillful. Uh, it, it's it's. We have people in all degrees in my uh, Tuesday training group, but I don't even list their degrees on the attendance list. We don't. We just call each other by first name, and the only currency there is what what skill level can you demonstrate? How much yeah. compassion? How how effective are you in doing in doing what you're doing? Now, one of our most uh, successful therapists ever is uh, Sunny Choi, who was a high tech engineer. Yeah. Uh, because I think his parents thought he didn't have what it would take to do working with humans, or he got in this pigeonhole that all he was good for was yeah. math and equations. And uh, a few years ago, he said, I I don't want this high-tech career. I want to help people. And he got what was a, a fairly direct route, uh, which was to get a LCSW, which I think yeah. takes two years and and uh, licensed clinical social worker. And, and then he came to the Tuesday group because it was the only training he got in my Tuesday group and coming on the Sunday hikes. But he learned how to do exactly what I do because he just copied what I do yeah. on the hikes. 
and he's fantastically uh, effective. Uh, he's, he's become like a healer, a miracle worker. And the simplest thing, some people now are just becoming coaches, and I, I don't think there's hardly ever any, even any licensure requirements. No, there isn't for it. Uh, and 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 I think the general public, they don't care to be honest. What kind of degrees you have? Because you can have a lot of degrees and just be a real boring intellectual person, but if, if you've got heart and you can heal people and the word gets around you, you've got all the referrals you want. That's my yeah. point of view. Well, I, I sort of agree with you. I, I do think that certain clients, I know it's a small minority, but certain clients do care about what, what yeah. degree you have. Sure. And, um, but I, you know, I, I kind of look back upon my own training because like Sonny, I, I was a high tech worker myself. That's right. And um, I chose to go the PhD route. In retrospect, I realized how many years yeah. of, of extra study that took yeah. me that did not bring an iota of, That's right. of uh, you know, uh, expertise to what I do now. Yeah. And so I would say if you just want to do team therapy, um, you know, like if you live in California, there's this uh, relatively newer license called the uh, Licensed Professional Counselor. Oh, yeah, there's a good one. Which you can also do in, in a couple of years. And um, that will get you working quicker than probably any other avenue. Yes. And then to learn how to become a team therapist, go to the feelinggoodinstitute.com. Yeah. And they've got all kinds of online trainings, 12-week introductory courses, and, and all kinds of workshops like the one I'm giving or did give, depending on when this thing comes out, with Jill, a one-day uh, work workshop on uh, how to treat people with relationship problems. You can start learning this stuff right away. You don't have to wait till you get your degree. And one last icing on the cake. See, in my counselor in high school, in college, told me to go to medical school. It was going to be so important to become a psychiatrist. Yeah. And I spent five years... Well, back then, you know, it was kind of true. Yeah, yeah. Well, the idea is, you know... I went to medical school, and the idea was all the, it's all these biological factors yeah. that cause depression and anxiety, and only a doctor can under, understand them. And then I had to do right. four years of residency training after that, yeah. and I did two years of postdoctoral training after that. And tell you the, the truth, I never learned anything in medical school that helped me treat anybody. It was the same as you. Yeah. Uh, that, that it was, and I've never had any patients who were depressed that it was caused by biological factors. It was a hoax. <laughs> uh, and uh, uh, so I, uh, you know, I spent a lot of wasted years there learning anatomy and, you know, histology and biochemistry and all, all, all of these things that don't really have anything to do if someone has a broken marriage and they're not getting along with their spouse or someone is feeling worthless and filled with self-criticisms. None of that stuff is going to, to my way of thinking at least, is, is going to be practically uh, help, helpful. Yeah. Next one is from Sandy, who says, uh, what exercises do you recommend breaking perfectionist tendencies with, especially if they have been going on for 19 years? How can I push that red button so I can get rid of these values? It's interesting right. she sees perfectionism that, as a value. Yeah. yeah, that's the magic button yeah. that, that I yeah. talk about uh, so often. Well, Sandy, I can tell you a couple things to do. Uh, one of them is uh, read the chapter on perfectionism in my book, Feeling Good, The New Mood Therapy. 
there's a lot of exercises to, to do there. And also, if Fabrice and others bug me, I, I wrote an article for Psychology Today magazine called The Perfectionist Script for Self-Defeat. Oh, really? And it was the most popular article in the history of Psychology Today magazine. And I don't think you can get it anymore. It came out in 1980, around the time I, I wrote it, somewhat tongue-in-cheek, tongue to be honest, to promote my book, Feeling Good. And it became a cover feature and very, very popular. And Zane in the Tuesday group, I found an old copy of it, and he, he digitized it uh, and I think just scanned it or something. And uh, he said he'd send me a copy of it. I could publish it on, on my website, The Perfection Script for Self-Defeat, so people could read that article. Oh, that, that'd be great, because I, I looked on Psychology Today, and their back issues online only go back to 2003, so back 15 yeah. years. yeah. Um, but I have some copies in the garage. I think I even have one copy of the original uh, magazine, and it was so cool. They had a dartboard on the cover mm. with a dart right in the middle of it, yeah. and it's bleeding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they have some good graphics. Still to this day, their graphics are just fantastic. Yes. Oh, one last thing. The, the, the idea, uh, Sandy, again, your, your question is of a general type, and, and you might want to write back with a, a moment that you were upset with your, your perfectionistic tendencies and do a yes. daily mood log, what was going on, what were your emotions, what, what were your negative thoughts, and then Fabrice and I could, could revisit this in a future podcast. And one thing among others is we'd have to look at the motivational piece because there's tremendous benefits and being per perfectionistic yeah. as well as a price to pay. I used to be, and still am at times, but you know, not nearly so much, but I used to be very perfectionistic, and it drove me to pretty great achievement. But there was also a, a, a down, a dark side to, to, to yeah. the thing. So as long as the achievement is, is primary, then you might still want to keep it. But uh, yeah. Um, so, and, and I want to, to add to this, this is true for any questions on, you know, specific problems that uh, people send us. We want, we want to know an, a situation where this manifests. Right. We probably would have been able to go m into more details. A lot more with, detail. With Sandy about this if, uh, if she had given us a particular situation. Yeah, and if she writes back to us with a situation, we could have a whole uh, podcast yeah. easily on uh, all the ways to overcome perfectionism. Yeah. But uh, we can only help people for one brief moment of your life. We can't help people in a general way, and that's why we need you to do a daily mood log uh, and, and send it to, to me if it's a, a mood problem like depression or anxiety or a relationship journal. If it's a relationship problem like if you want help with a conflict in relationships, write down a specific moment that you had a conflict with someone. What did they say? Yeah. And what did you say next? And that's all I need, those two things, and then we can have a fabulous uh, broadcast on yeah. that relationship uh, issue. Uh, next question is from Rin. Rin, how do you spell it? R-I-N. Rin, okay. Uh, I have a question about the Burns Depression Checklist that I'd love to have answered on your podcast. As a layperson with quite some experience in depression, never thought I would mention that as a kind of qualification, I couldn't help but wonder why for sleeping, 
which is the item 19 and appetite, item 20, both not enough and decrease and too much and increase can indicate that you're depressed. But for interest in work and sex, items 16 and 20, only the loss of interest seems to count as a symptom. I'd love to hear more about that. I don't question the validity of the checklist, and I guess even if somebody exposes some sex, sexaholism or workaholism as a symptom of their depression, they will score high enough on the other items. Well, first of all, Ren, let me say that I totally love your question. Uh, I like people who think about things in, in a little bit of depth, and I've done a lot of work in psychometrics and scale development. The, uh, the early Burns depression checklist was kind of based on the conventional wisdom or lack of wisdom uh, about the symptoms of, of depression. And, and they used to say, are you, you're sleeping too much or you're sleeping too little, that shows that you're, you're depressed. Or you're eating too much or you're eating too little, and, and that's a symptom of depression. And, and, the bottom, and so I included those things dutifully on my early long depression checklist. My research and common sense and clinical evidence um, since that time has, has shown that those items shouldn't even be on a depression checklist. And to ask if an increase or a decrease is a symptom of depression is just uh, not nonsensical, nonsensical thinking. Uh, but that's the way they used to define, they used to define depression. So I thought, well, I'll put these on my checklist. Now I've boiled my depression checklist down to five symptoms. And those are the real symptoms of depression. And one is feeling sad or depressed. And the more you are, the more depressed you are. Uh, feeling hopeless, feeling worthless, a loss of motivation, and a loss of pleasure or satisfaction in life. And once you've got those five symptoms, and they're all one way, they're not both ways. The more you have worthlessness, the more depressed you are, the more hopeless you are, the more dep depressed you are. Once you have those five items, you have a 95% a, a accurate measure of depression, and you can complete the new Burns Depression Checklist in 15 seconds and score it and interpret it, and it's extremely, ex extremely accurate. Um, I did a study at the Stanford Hospital of 178 newly admitted patients, and I looked at all of these so-called organic symptoms of, of depression, like too much sleep or too little sleep or too much appetite or too little appetite or a loss of interest in sex or, or you know, lo loss of interest, uh, you know, you know motive, well, workaholic. And none of these things had any correlation at all with, with, with depression. They're just non-specific symptoms that, that anyone could have. And they don't belong on a depression test and they don't, and they should not be felt, they should not, they are not valid symptoms of depression. They shouldn't be included in the DSM as symptoms of major depression or any other <clears throat> type of depression. Well, let me be a little bit technical on this. And that, that's my perfectionist side. Good. Um, and your high tech side. That perhaps, yeah. So I'm, I'm looking at the, the DSM criteria right yeah. now for oh, a right. major depressive disorder, which is, uh, what depression is called on the DSM. Yeah. And, um, you know, before listing what they are, um, after all, depression is just a definition. If I say it right. is X, then it is X. That's right. And if you say it is Y, we're just not speaking the same language. That's right. So, the it's not a thing. It's just a yeah. way of categorizing certain feelings. So the DSM originally was invented so that 
clinicians could have the same language. For research, especially. Yeah, for, especially for research. So when I say X, and you, could, can, you can go look in the dictionary, and you look at X, oh, that's what you mean. Okay, so I get it. Yeah. So now we, we sort of have integrated uh, the definitions in the DSM. And so for major depressive disorder, it happens to say that on criteria number four, insomnia or hypersomnia nearly every day. Yeah. Okay, so it says so. That must be a, a, a criteria for, for depression. The, Especially if you think the DSM is a non-psychotic uh, manuscript. Well, you know, we, we're not going to go into criticizing too, too the criticism. DSM right now. Okay. We, we can have an episode on this. But, okay, uh, yeah. Uh, the criteria number three is significant weight loss when not dieting or weight gain. Yeah, exactly. Or decrease or increase in appetite yeah. nearly every day. Yeah. So that's what the DSM says. Yeah. Hence, if you want a checklist that mirrors the DSM, you're going to have to put those in items in that, there. That's right. And the problem in the DSM is, is, is poorly thought out. It's uh, bizarre. It's Alice in Wonderland. Uh, thank uh, you. A little bit, a little bit. We, we should probably do a, a, an episode. Sure, on let's do an episode on DSM yeah, and yeah. do do. A, it's the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. So the title of our podcast is "Do Mental Disorders Exist?" Thomas exactly. Saws made his reputation on that theme, and we can certainly uh, reawaken some controversy we, around we, that. We thing. can, yeah. Well, we wouldn't be the first ones for sure. And you know, criteria number two, which is what. Uh, um, Rin was referring to is markedly diminished interest or pleasure in all or almost all activities, which could include work and sex. Yeah. But there's no increase in, in this particular criteria. Yeah. 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 A, 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 a decrease ability to enjoy pleasurable activities. Yeah. That's one of the five on the Burns depression checklist, the new reduced thing. And that, yeah. that is a valid symptom of, of depression. And that's what we refer to as anhedonia. You know? Yeah. I yeah. cannot find any pleasure. It's always in life. good to use a big word when a small word will suffice, because if you use a big word, it makes it seem like you know something when you don't. I guess anadonia is shorter than loss of pleasure in life. Well, that's true. <laughs> Only one word instead yeah, of five. True. That's true. Uh, here's the next one from Kevin. Kevin, uh, Kevin says, uh, simple question. I am a therapist. How do I get over my desire to help? That's an easy one. Well, yes. Um, uh, um, Fabrice will now reveal, become, reveal become the an answer. insurance salesman. <laughs> yeah. yeah, the the um, one of the core aspects of team therapy is helping therapists not help patients. Rushing in to try to help patients is the cause of virtually all therapy, almost all, say ninety five percent of therapeutic failure. Uh, and, and instead, we we look at all the reasons not to change and become the voice of the patient's resistance, and and do what we call sit, sitting with open hands, rather than trying to sell the patient on change. Trying to help the patient, try to save the patient, trying to rescue the patient, causes the the, the patient to to resist. Now, the question is, is how how to get over it. Um, it it's a profound. Uh, philosophical de decision that you, you have to make. The, the first few years of my practice, I, I, I was going to save everybody whether they want to be saved or not. 
I was going to rescue everyone, I was going to help everyone. I was into this helping uh, addiction, and my ego w w was based was based on on that. And and I wouldn't have wanted to to let go of it. I I was going to help everyone, whether they wanted help or not. And then at a certain point, I I, I got over that, and that led to to team therapy, which is so much more powerful. But one thing we do, and that my wife Melanie has has, has said to do. A lot of therapists can't learn team therapy, and my wife thinks it's because they don't want to rather than they don't have the intellectual capacity to. And one of the things is, is maybe you, you should, you could make a list, Kevin, of all the, all the reasons to try to help and, and rescue your, your patients. Uh, and then after you've listed five or 10 or 15 really good reasons to, to keep trying to save and rescue people, you could ask yourself, why would I want to give that up? Is is that something, something you 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 want to give up? For example, I was in a rec I was doing a workshop, and I used to ask a trick question to to make a point. I, I don't do that anymore because it shocks people too much. But I I, I used to ask in, in my anxiety disorders workshop on day two to see if they learned what I was trying to teach on day one, what, what is the most effective technique for obsessive compulsive disorder? And then they all raise their hand and they say exposure and response prevention. Mm -hmm. And then I say, that's the, the biggest, most common error in all of uh, psychotherapy, taking a diagnosis and then pushing techniques on a patient. Yeah. And I, and I, I said, with some, if someone has a diagnosis of OCD, they'll have at least 10 other diagnoses. And the question is, what do they want help with? Maybe they want help with their relationship with, with their son. But if you start pushing, you know, it's your job to save them from OCD, that, that causes therapeutic failure. But I remember once a therapist rushed out of the workshop, demanded a refund, and refused, you know, any further dialogue. She was so offended by this because she was specializing in exposure and response ah, yes. for, for OCD. But it's 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 um, it's really a, de a decision a decision that, that that you have to make and and see I used to feel boy if you've got problem X it's my job to save you and it's been such a relief not not to have given to have given that up to have given that up. Well, one thing I I, I may add to this is that. Um, no, and this is true in any kind of, of impulse we have, is to look at uh, the, the selfishness or the self-centeredness of the impulse. Yes. Do we do this for ourselves or do we do this for our patient? Yeah, that's right. And, I uh, love it. You know, um, and we had this episode on no self. Once you see that essentially you don't really have a self, selfishness has no point anymore. Yeah. So might as well just be and do what is it that you do best, which yeah. is, yeah. in this case, to ask people whether they do want help or not. Yeah, yeah. It's been such a joy for me when I'm working with patients, rather than to try to, to sell them on, sh on change, to, to show them what the status quo shows about them that's beautiful and awesome and all the benefits of it, and to wonder with them, maybe this isn't something that you... That you'd want to give up. Why would you want to change? And then it becomes the patient's job to sell me on change. And that leads to a peaceful, loving, 
powerful healing healing experience, but the, the therapist's ego has to die. This is one of the four deaths of the therapist's ego, and this is the death of the codependent or or, or helping yeah. helping ego. And it's a form of ego that is um, insidious because yes. we think of ego as narcissism, I'm yeah. the best. Yeah. But it's not that. It's it's that, oh, I need to help. I'm aching to help. Yes. No. Oh, I, I, that's beautiful the way the way you're putting that. And I still slip into it from time to time. And oh, when me I, too. When I think back on, on therapeutic failures that, that I've had, yeah. uh, I can pinpoint my ego trying to be an expert, trying to help somebody without looking at all the reasons maybe that they wouldn't want help and that they would that they wouldn't yeah. want to change it just it just blows my mind it's to it's satisfy been, my own discomfort yeah 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 and also my wanting to impress somebody to show them what an expert i am and i've got the answer for you and yeah. you know i'm going to help you and i'll show you i'll show you the way right. and a lot of times patient like will like that and they'll buy into it and you'll get addicted to it but at least half of your patients are, are not going to like that. Okay, so we have one last question here from Amanda. Amanda, neat name. And uh, she says, I'm a psychologist from Spain, and I've been studying on your secrets of effective communication. I have a question regarding the disarming technique. More specifically, what happens afterwards? In the example you gave in one of your podcasts, a person who is feeling disheartened with regards to therapy and mentions that uh, you know he or she feels she hasn't made any progress, was uh, wondering what you might answer if after using the secrets of effective communication successfully and getting closer, the patient asks, so doctor, you really think I've made no progress? This seems tricky because I get the sense I would be stuck between a rock and a hard place here. Well, it's a great question, Amanda. Thank you for, for sending it in. And I'm sure you'll have some great ideas on this one, too. But the, all of the five secrets can be used effectively, and then you can just miss a little bit, and, and then they're going to be a big flop. Uh, learning the five secrets is like learning to play a musical instrument. And if you work at it and practice and correct your errors, you can get really, really good at it. But let's say a patient says, oh, Dr. Burns, you're, you're not helping you know, me. I'm, you know, I'm not getting anywhere. A, a skillful use of the disarming technique might be something like, you know, Amanda, let's pretend that Amanda's the patient. What, what you're saying is, is true. Uh, you know, I've, I've been thinking the same thing the last couple of sessions. I, I don't think I've done a good job. You're... Uh, I haven't been understanding you. I haven't been been helpful to, to you, and I and I can see that your depression score is not improving. Your anger score is, is not improving, and I can imagine that you're feeling discouraged and down, and maybe even uh, disappointed or or angry with me. And uh, I feel bad too, because I because I really like you, and uh, I'm convinced we can do some some good work together. And in fact. The cool thing about what you're saying is I think this this puts us on the same page and let, let's let's talk about it. Tell me what I'm not helping you with and the things that I've been saying and doing that aren't aren't effective. I think this is the dialogue we need to have to get on the, 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 the get to working together in the way you want and, and the way I want. Uh, now it seems to me that that response conveys hope. And the idea is we're going to use this failure to, to improve the therapy. 
but the therapist could so easily do this in an ineffective way, and the patient says, "Oh, Doctor Burns, you're not you're, you're not helping me." But you know that that's that's not what Amanda wrote. She said, "I am not making progress." So so the patient is blaming himself or herself. Yeah. Uh, oh, so you want me to respond to the patient saying that I, I, I'm not making progress? Yeah. So I think, well, you know, Doctor, I uh, I don't know. I I must really not be a, a good patient. I'm not making any progress in this. And you're, you're probably thinking I'm, I'm just the last of idiots, but I, I'm, I'm so down on myself for not getting better. Okay, let, now let's hear your five secrets response. Well, that's where the disarming technique, I, I wouldn't use the disarming technique. I wouldn't say you're right. Um, let's I, I don't, hear your response. The patient says, I'm not making progress, I'm, I'm critical of myself, R right? Yeah, well, and I would go straight into empathy. Yeah, well, let, let's hear your response. Yeah, so, um, D, uh, Bill, uh, you really sound like you're, you're down on yourself, you know, you're, you're criticizing uh, your progress, and... I, I can imagine how disheartening that's, that must feel for you, and and, and um, you know you, you sound like it's increasing your your depression. And I have to say that you know I I feel my heart goes out to you for for feeling this way because I you know I look at the work we've been doing and boy you're 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 really putting all of your heart into this and and I can see how hard you're you're working and I and I so. Uh, enjoy working with you. Um, I, I'd love to, to hear more about what, what type of, uh, of things go through your mind when, uh, when you're um, evaluating yourself. That would be one example of response. That, 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 that sounds really, really good. You're saying, uh, gee, uh, Bill or whatever, Amanda, you're, you're so down on yourself right now and you must be feeling disheartened and my heart goes out to you you're working hard and and I and I, I enjoy working with you I think those are those are really great things I think I might want to add you, you know these uh, the feeling of hopelessness is probably the worst symptom of depression and I don't think I've ever had a patient who at some point in the therapy didn't feel hopeless or feel like they're, they're not making progress or they're not not going to make uh, progress and, and kind of beating up on yourself because of that must feel so so painful and i have no doubt if we work together uh, you'll you'll make a breakthrough you're working so hard i've never had a patient who worked hard who didn't eventually achieve the goal of joy and happiness and self-esteem but let's talk about where we're stuck right now and what are the things that that aren't working for you maybe some things i've done or said that weren't helpful to you or or some problems that that you're feeling kind of frustrated or even a bit angry about i i really want to hear what you have to say this is vitally important how's that yeah that sounds pretty good you know it's but I noticed that you, you didn't use the disarming technique. Well, um, so if we want to say that, I, I, I would say, yeah, you're kind of stuck right now. I see your scores haven't been changing the, the, last, the last few weeks, and that's so common in depression or so painful in, in depression. Uh, the, the hopelessness and the idea that you're stuck is, is, is probably the worst worst 
part of depression. How, how's that? Well, that sounds like the the thought empathy. You know, you, you're you're um, phrasing back. So you didn't to, think I agreed with him when I said it? You haven't made any progress in the last few weeks, and your scores aren't changing. Well, Did that sound like disarming. It sounded like you agreed with saying, "Okay, I, I like I hear you say that." No, I would say here's the data right now on your your score sheets, and we can see that your depression hasn't been improving at all in the last few weeks. So, you know, what, what you're saying is is very true. Yeah, I um, you could point to the to the to the facts. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Sh- but so again, Amanda has has a valid question there, which is, oh yeah, the right the doctor is actually telling me that I'm right and I'm not making any progress. I I knew I was hopeless. Yeah. Well, if you uh, agree in a dysfunctional way, yeah. uh, it, 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 certainly it, it it will backfire. There's a difference between saying, yeah, you you've been stuck in the last few weeks, and if we talk about it, we we, we can find a a path forward. But but before we do that, tell me how awful this is for you because i know the hopelessness is the the worst worst part of the uh, of the depression and then when, once we've you know gotten on the same page together let, let's see if we can move this this baby forward that's one way of doing it but if you say oh yes you you're you're making no progress and you're screwed i mean that's that's a little different kind of therapeutic uh, statement the question is whether or not you're going to be including positive reframing and, 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 and conveying it with a sense of warmth, a sense of compassion, and a sense that you do have something to offer. One of the problems in the treatment of depression is uh, I call reverse hypnosis. It's where the, the patient convinces you, the therapist, that he or she really is uh, hopeless and, and worthless. And I don't think I've ever had a patient where uh, at the beginning of therapy I didn't come to that conclusion. Patients are very good at putting us into this hypnotic state of thinking, oh, wow, yeah. maybe this one really is a worthless person. Maybe yeah. this person really is hopeless. But if you buy into that, maybe you're buying into that a little, Amanda, then you're going you're gonna to get demoralized. But I never buy in, into that with, with a patient. I have never given up on a patient who, who's depressed and, and never will. And, and persistence has, has always led to therapeutic breakthroughs yeah. for, for, for my patient. And, and so I, I, I try to disarm the patient, acknowledge the, the, the nightmare that the patient is, is in, and yet at the same time pr- provide compassion and, and hope. Yeah. Does that answer it, or? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that uh, you know the, the comment on on uh, the hypnosis that we're under, the reverse hypnosis, is is something to, to keep mindful of, you know, throughout the work with a with a patient, is to say, you know, am I buying into what they're telling me? And is that impairing my yeah. ability to and it's a powerful f- phenomenon. Uh, I don't think it's not talked about very much, but it happens in the treatment of depression. The patient hypnotizes you into believing they're really a hopeless, worthless person, and they're so good at it. And then when they recover, a few weeks later, you say, how could I have been believing that baloney? But it, they, they just, they're really, really good at it, and it's not intentional e- either. Uh, and, you know, we had a woman came to my clinic in Philadelphia that I might have mentioned to you. She, she said, I think I might really be a hopeless case. I've been depressed in London for, I've had 50 years of failed therapy. I've taken every known antidepressant. I've had 200 electroconvulsive therapies and, and two lobotomies. 
Oh my God! <laughs> and I referred her to a colleague of mine. <laughs> oh my gosh, this is this is going to be too difficult. Yeah. <laughs> and then I talked with Tony Bates, was his name. He was this charismatic Irish psychologist, really a nice guy. Yeah. And, and so I said, "Well, this is a good case for for Tony." And then I talked to him about five week, days later. I said, "Oh gosh, how are you doing with that woman from London?" And he says, "Oh, fine." I said, "She must be really difficult." And he says. What do you mean? I says, well, gosh, all the failed therapy and everything. How how is she doing? He says, oh, she's recovered. <laughs> I said, what are you talking about? He said, I just did the regular CBT thing. She's never had it work like a shark. <laughs> but it was so it was so, so interesting. He, he didn't we, let himself be hypnotized he, by he, her. Yeah. yeah. Well, he hadn't taken the history either. Oh, okay. I did the history, and then he just was going to do some treatment. <laughs> But yeah, you get it with anxiety. The anxious patient hypnotizes you into believing they're too fragile for exposure. They they shouldn't have to confront their fear. And if you buy into that, therapy is pretty doomed. Mm-hmm. And the patient with a relationship problem does the third form of reverse hypnosis, which which is, I'm a victim, and my spouse is the perpetrator of all this bad stuff, and I'm good, and he or she is bad. Mm-hmm. And if you buy into that, then the relationship therapy is, 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 is pretty doomed. Is there a reverse hypnosis for a habit or addiction, Fabrice? Well, it kind of probably goes about the same way, you know. Doctor, well, I, I can't really stop, you know. I'm, I'm just uh, not focused enough. I, I, I can't concentrate on, on the task at hand. You know? Unless I have something to eat or... Unless I have something to eat, exactly. <laughs> or I shoot myself. You know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Okay, well, that concludes our episode. Thank you, David. Well, thank you, Steve and Sandy, Ren, Kevin, and Amanda for those provocative, I would say, and yeah. exciting questions. Yeah. Got a little controversy going there. Yeah, we did. You know, keep, it, keep them going. This has been another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast. For more information, Visit Dr. Burns' website at feelinggood.com where you will find the show notes for this podcast under the blog page and where you can leave your comments and questions. The website has an abundance of resources for therapists as well as non-therapists, including books, workshops, a list of online training groups around the world, and much more. Theme music is Gypsy Jazz in Paris, 1935, composed and performed by Brett Van Donzel. I am your host, Fabrice Nye, and I invite you to join us next time for another episode of the Feeling Good Podcast.